Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Once upon a time, a beautiful duchess inherited a thriving land of song, dance, and culture. Before her father the king died, he knew evildoers would set prey on our damsel, so he gave her hand in marriage to a young king. The couple was beautiful to look at, but turmoil began as soon as they were wed, making happily ever after a very long time away. The end. Just a quick note that, more than any other subject we have ever covered, Eleanor's story basically comes to us through her relationships with her father, her husbands, and sons, especially the first half. So the further you go back, that's often the case. So you might just learn about some roosters as well as this chick. The history is important to get the context. So bonus. With that in mind, on with the show. Let's talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1122, the era is best described as the Middle Middle Ages, but it's often called the High Middle Ages. Thirty years before, the First Crusade, a territorial, political, and holy war between European Christians and Muslims who had occupied the Holy Lands took place. The reopening of the Christian pilgrimage routes because of that First Crusade created a need for protective forces. A small, devout army of elite warriors called the Knights of the Templar are forming. Anna Komnene, an educated Byzantine princess, was working on a 15-volume collection that would earn her the title of the world's first female historian. China was at the end of the Northern Song Dynasty, and sometime in 1122, Eleanor of Aquitaine was born. The woman that history knows as Eleanor of Aquitaine was born sometime in the year 1122, the eldest child of the three children of William X, Duke of Aquitaine, and his wife, Einor of Chateauroux. In fact, Eleanor's very name in Latin was a pun, Alia Einor, which means the other Eleanor. <laughs> and she would have called herself Alienor, but we won't for clarity. I hope you understand. <laughs> Incidentally, I have a friend who's called June, although that's not her name, uh, mm -hmm. because she is a junior of her mother, and everybody calls her June. <laughs> Eleanor's parents had sort of an interesting relationship, almost disturbing, I'd say. <laughs> Papa's father, William IX, and Mama's mother, called Dangereuse, or Dangerosa, were lovers. Are we confused? Okay. The heir to the kingdom was married against his will. Two, the daughter of his father's mistress. Hmm. Clever mistress, I would say, but it seems like that might have been a sad fate for Mama. Like, here, go marry this man who blames your mother for the unhappiness of his mother and pretty much hates your guts. So, good luck. On her side, Anor was pretty much, you know, her mom just kind of left. That was a tradition at the time that the kids went with the father. I feel like we have to give you a quick picture of what Aquitaine was and where it was. So if you can picture modern-day France as a rough-edged kind of square, Aquitaine and the other areas that were ruled by this family would be the whole bottom left side and a giant section of land through the middle all the way to the right. Almost a third of modern France. This is not small potatoes. These were very wealthy people. I thought it was very interesting that the actual kingdom of France was so small 
especially compared to Aquitaine, but that's who ruled over Aquitaine. Now, technically, all of this territory was under the banner of the Kingdom of France. The dukes and duchesses of Aquitaine owed fealty to the King of France, and that meant Anytime he needed men, money, supplies, they were obligated to send it to him. But much like the new boss at work who really knows nothing about what you do, the king is walking a tightrope all the time between trying to show his authority, you know, over the nobles and not making them mad enough to attack him because most of them were richer and had more power than he did for one thing. And men, you could give everyone one little butter knife and he'd be in trouble. That's how many men were not his directly. Um, Functionally, the only direct rule the French king had was Paris and the area just around Paris. We'll post a map uh, in the Pinterest board in the show notes because it's kind of shocking how small the powerhouse of the kingdom of France like really was when you really get down to it. (laughs) So Aquitaine was rich culturally, agriculturally, and materially. It was a threat or a prize, depending on how you looked at it. People there, in addition, like to be convinced instead of told. It's a whole land full of rebels. So advice to future rulers, develop your people skills. (laughs) Grandpapa's court at Aquitaine was a dashing sort of place. Art and music and poetry just in everyday life. Very important. William the Ninth was considered quite the poet himself, although any of his poems wouldn't pass muster at any HR department these days. Would you like me to read the mildest of them? Oh, please do. Translation of one stanza. My okay. gear below the waterline, it would almost break. You won't believe what all is sore and how much I do ache. Oh, oh. <laughs> it's no love poem, Susan. No, no, it's not. William the Ninth had brought all this poetry and song with him from the First Crusade. And these people were called troubadours. They were traveling musicians and poets. They were very popular. They traveled with the Crusaders to kind of entertain them and to spread gossip. And they originated from this area, from the Aquitaine land. And William the Ninth was actually considered the first troubadour, although he brought it to court and made it cool instead of actually starting the whole trend. William the Ninth was also a rascal when it came to the ladies. That said, that said, though, Aquitaine was considered quite progressive when it came to the treatment of women. So, perspective, they were included in daily life at court for one thing and not shut away. So that's the baseline with which we're operating. That was considered super liberal. The rest of Europe looked all askance over here like the women are dancing Like, they wore eyeliner? There's extravagant clothes and perfume? Okay, that's all surface, although that shocked everyone enough. But guess what else? More importantly, women could hold property in their own right in Aquitaine. And that, I assure you, will come in handy later, though you wouldn't think so. Because when Eleanor was five, her parents gave her a little brother. William, who would naturally inherit everything. Speaking of inheritance, Grandpapa William the Ninth died the same year that little William was born, and Papa became Duke William the Tenth of Aquitaine. Now, he is nowhere near the sort of character that his own father was, and he kind of suffered a minor version of what the French king did in that he had these lesser restless nobles of his own to deal with. 
But the court kind of continued to be arty and liberal. And I have to tell you, I think it was sort of going on the leftover steam of Grandpapa's energy, but it was so pretty glorious. So when Eleanor was somewhere near eight years old, see her birthday exact birthday is in question. So we're going to be like somewhere near this. So somewhere Mm. near eight years old, her mother died shortly followed by her four-year-old brother, William, leaving Eleanor the heiress presumptive to the richest duchy in France. Presumptive means presuming that no boy comes along later and jumps in front of her. And Papa's a rich man and Papa's only 31 years old. So don't bother getting excited, you know. Right. But as of this minute, this very minute, you're possibly the most important little girl on the planet. And she was treated like the most important little girl on the planet. (laughs) What was really cool about this area is that girls could be educated. And Eleanor and her sister Petronella were. They had tutors who taught them Latin and other languages in France. Uh, They actually learned to read, although they probably didn't learn to write. It was considered two separate things. You hired people. She played the harp. She sang. She danced. She learned how to ride, not side saddle either. She rode with her legs on each side of the horse, whatever that's called, as I am not a horseback rider. A stride. Oh, a stride. That's a great word. (laughs) Also, they studied history, which is actually sort of like genealogy once you get to this level, don't you think? Oh, yeah. She was also taught practical skills, by which I mean sewing, weaving, spinning, managing a household, and social skills, mostly by observation, although of course she did have music lessons, but dancing, flirting, and the management and manipulation of people. All in all, some of what I learned in high school, but the course of our lives is hardly parallel. (laughs) I would have liked to have taken a couple of those classes. They would have come in handy in life. (laughs) Um, So people remarked all over the place that Eleanor and her sister Petronella were sort of spoiled. They called it reared indelicacy. (laughs) You know, in an era when absolute obedience to a parent or any authority figure really was reinforced with harsh treatment, uh, emotional or physical, depending, but not so here. You know, it seems like in Aquitaine, interesting is more valued than obedience. So Eleanor grew up surrounded by luxury and freedom, relatively speaking, and more affection than I'm used to seeing from noble fathers in any era, might I say. She was allowed to be herself, and really, with no barriers to her happiness, and sheltered from the actual real-world turbulence that her father was experiencing with his nobles, she Mm -hmm. grew into an extremely self-confident and beautiful young woman, or so they say. So many people write about her beauty, but no one bothered to describe what she looked like specifically. In contrast to, have you ever read, I know you have, I think you have, the Divergent series? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I don't really like, I will say, but one thing that (laughs) author does... all the time is describe what every dang character is supposed to look like in <laughs> detail. And we could have used her, um, time travelers, to go back and tell us what Eleanor looked like. Yeah, it's actually, it's kind of believed that she had dark reddish brown hair. Uh, she was tall and thin. And that's about as far as you can go with any level of accuracy. So, beautiful or not, there's still this problem of a male heir. And here's where history goes a couple different ways. Either Papa proposed marriage to this woman named Emma of Limoges, and either he did marry her briefly when Eleanor was 14, which is what... Emma of Limoges' biographies say, just to 
let you know where that comes from. Or he meant to marry her, but before he got there, some nobles conspired to kidnap her and one of them married her himself to take her and her family's influence out of Papa's pocket. (laughs) The second is... More picturesque, of course. <laughs> yeah, it does make for a way better story, doesn't it? Though I have to say, it's horrible for the Emmett in question, but I just put that story in to show you how casually and like property women are just treated. It's assumed that she'd be as happy, i.e., who cares, with one guy as the other guy. But either way, it made little difference because Papa had gotten an idea in his head. He's fresh from war, by the way, and worn out dealing with those freaking underlings who are always rebellious and always need to have the smackdown. And he's kind of guilty feeling from assorted sins. Um, We won't go into detail there, but Papa decided he was going to go on a pilgrimage to a shrine called Santiago de Compostela in Spain and ask for forgiveness and help with his, I guess, enemies, we'd call them, although they're his own people. Um, All those vassals... The enemies in question were suspecting that in addition to asking God for help, William planned to ask other rulers for help on his way, and they were not well. And even though Papa fully intended to come back and produce some sons from the wife Emma that he did have, or some new someone else's daughter yet to be determined, like I said, doesn't matter. (laughs) Travel's dangerous. And, you know, medical care is hardly more than superstition. And Papa had to face the fact that in case he died, here's valuable old Aquitaine in the hands of his teenage daughter. So Papa called all his vassals to come swear an oath of fealty to Eleanor on her 14th birthday. They promised their loyalty to her as their overlord if she inherited. Well, you know what? There's plan A. Though, is that oath even worth the breath or the paper it's written on? Well... After all, King Henry over in England had just tried this with his daughter Matilda in England, and after his death, what did it even get Britain? A big old civil war with Matilda's cousin Stephen sitting on the throne and anarchy everywhere. You know what? No thank you for that. We're not going to have that here. We need some cement. We need some insurance. So Papa made Eleanor the ward of King Louis VI of France. So the powerful overlord of everybody would be personally concerned about who would control Aquitaine himself. Two fingers to his eyes and pointing at you, unruly nobleman. You cross him at your peril. How about it? So off Papa went to visit the shrine of St. James the Great. It's a common destination for Christian pilgrims. It was thought, and I think it still is... Um, you can take tours. I, I saw a page on Lonely Planet where you can still do a walk seven days. And I assure you, people bring you bottled water, which was not the case. <laughs> it would have been it, w- it would have been a good case in, the, in William's yeah. situation. Yeah. So, yeah, you can you can take seven day, nine day walking uh, tours of Compostela uh, still if you want to. And I'm sure you can rough it if you really want to. <laughs> but um, so we'll have to link you to all assorted tours and information about that. Um, site. But um, in this day and in this time, visiting this shrine would reduce your punishment after death for sins committed on earth. Although I think you're still required to take the consequences of your actions here. Like, I think it doesn't get you out of jail, jail, but it gets you out of eternal jail, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I I know what you mean. (laughs) So anyway, Papa did make it there. His goal, staggering in from having either drunk or swam in contaminated water. It's the same thing. I've been to the pool. Uh, <laughs> on the way there, he, he got sick. And it was Good Friday, the Friday before Easter, in 1137. My son, 
born on Good Friday, which we call Better Friday. But this was Worse Friday because <laughs> it's not so good for Papa, who was so, so sick that he put his affairs in order. This takes some fortitude. He arranged for Eleanor and the King of France to be told before anyone else of his death um, before the news could get out, leaving all his property officially to Eleanor. But get this, it was not to be absorbed into her future husband's land, but it was to remain hers and her heirs were to inherit it. Which seems like an academic requirement because you know what? If Eleanor marries somewhere in France and she has a son, so Aquitaine becomes French. The end. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal right now, does it? Well, of course her heirs are going to inherit. Whatever. I don't care if Aquitaine's separate. But so that was the agreement. So King Louis could act as regent of Aquitaine, though. And please, please, oh, please get this girl a husband for me. And then he died at only 38 years old. Conveniently in the church. Yeah. Like actually in the church. He made it to his destination and then dropped dead. He's known as William the Saint. And is it just because of this voyage? Because I don't think he was super saintly. I know. I don't think he was either. (laughs) I don't know. Well, Eleanor was now the Countess of Poitou, the Duchess of Gascony, and Aquitaine in her own right. She is the wealthiest woman in Europe, and she's only 15. This is a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens now that Eleanor has a little power. We are back. Well, well, well. Back with the most eligible woman in Europe. Maybe the world, frankly. Um, (laughs) So forget her personal qualities. Doesn't matter. Like I said, like I keep saying, doesn't matter. It's her property that seems to be the most attractive thing about her. To the men in question. The messengers from Compostela found the French king at one of his hunting lodges. I don't know how, honestly. Anybody finds anybody these days. Do they send 20 guys and one guy hopes to find him at home? I never know how they do that. well, you, they don't travel like in by themselves. It's not like a road trip for one. So perhaps everybody knows that the king and his entourage have gone on to the hunting lodge. Oh, or maybe they go, you know, like how you go to Europe during a certain week and you go to Aspen during a certain week. <laughs> I get it. Maybe it's a regular thing. Okay. Well, anyway, they found him. And when he was told of Duke William's death, he could hardly restrain his excitement. Are you kidding me? Because this means that my son will at last have more resources than our vassals. And right away, he sent for his son. Guess what? Also a Louis. So right now, let's call him Prince Louis. Though we won't have to do that for long. You know, he, in fact, had been crowned as a king at 10 alongside his father. They do that in France to make sure that there's no dispute about who's going to take over afterward. Seems like it's working for them. Um, it might not work for Eleanor's family later. That's in part two. So, young Louis, Prince Louis, you are hereby ordered to marry my ward, the Duchess Eleanor of Aquitaine, with all great haste. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> like, more on Prince Louis later, but he was perfectly amenable to this process. 
sure. It's like, all right, I guess I was told I was going to have to do this. So, okay, here I am. <laughs> so the arrangements were made. And on June 18th, this is like two months after Papa died, um, a grand procession, grand procession set off overland toward Bordeaux, where Eleanor had been left behind. Her her father went to Compostela and left them with a trusted archbishop in Bordeaux. That's a pretty <laughs> safe place to leave you. The babysitter. It was no kid's pilgrimage to Spain. <laughs> so 500 knights, in case there was any trouble with Eleanor's vassals, super smart. Plenty of gold for supplies and for show, in fact. You want to show that the king is in town. Advisors and servants and important political advice from his father. Keep your temper, no matter what. At least right now. Make sure the common people are not trodden on or oppressed in any way along your journey. You are to pay for everything. You are not to have your soldiers billeted in their houses. They can sleep in a field. Their soldiers don't get on the bad side of Eleanor's lowliest of people in any way. And you have dignity and you act like a king. Okay. See you later. Good luck. Go get married. <laughs> I don't, as a personality, we'll go into his personality later, but I think he was uniquely qualified to follow that order at this point in his life because he was pretty mild and, you know, an agreeable chap. So there were no protests. There were no attacks. Papa had chosen Eleanor's guardian well. <laughs> it took them about a month to travel to Bordeaux where she was. And I looked it up. It's like under 350 miles. It's a six hour drive, an hour long flight. And Louis and his people took a month to travel it. (laughs) Well, on the 25th of July, 1137, 16 year old Louis and 15 year old Eleanor were married with the greatest of pomp and circumstance. The cathedral where they got married, which is called St. Andre is still there. If you're in the neighborhood, by the way, which boggles my mind. It's from 1137. Honestly, in this country, European friends in this country, there is nothing that old, um, except for in the Southwest. But I would say as to the East Coast, mm, we built out of wood and natural materials and it all returned to the earth. (laughs) That's right. So at least a thousand guests celebrated with the most glorious food and drink. We are in Burgundy, so the wine will be great. Aquitaine was used to putting on a show, and I do not know, and I would only assume that there is a man, probably a man, in uh-huh. charge of all events, like a, a marshal or something who's always in charge of party planning. I hate to give it such a minimized name, but there's got to be a master of ceremonies type of guy, because this went off without, I mean, a hitch. High five. High five. So the streets were even decorated and lined with cheering crowds. The bride wore a red dress. And the next day, they were off to Poitiers to be officially made count and countess there. And then they went ahead and went toward Paris with nearly the whole of Eleanor's Poitiers household and, of course, her sister Petronilla. So while they were traveling, a messenger intercepted them. The king is dead. Long live the king. What? What has just happened? Oh, well, Louis VI of France was dead. Of dysentery. Time travelers? This would be a place where a quick trip to CVS before you go could change the course of history. (laughs) So what a year this has been. What a year. From indulged daughter of a wealthy man to an orphan and the queen of France. Just like that. Boom. 
So Paris of the 1100s was certainly not the hub of style and glamour that we think of today. In fact, to someone from Aquitaine, this was a giant step backwards in terms of comfort and style. Just wind was whistling through the stone walls. Hardly any light made it into the living areas. Manners were not what they could be. Sanitation was not what it could be. I can just see all of Eleanor's elegant people from Poitiers looking at each other like, oh, no. And in fact, I'm going to spell that E-A-U-X-N-E-A-U-X. <laughs> you know, up until this point, they almost kind of sound like, um, you know, Marie Antoinette and her Louis going to Paris, but Versailles was still 500 years out, and that's even in the incarnation of a hunting lodge, and they were like seven Louis away from him. So it's way in the future. This is bare bones Paris right now. Well, so here's a project anyway. Here's some things to spend my time on. Um, King, as we'll call him now, Louis, seems to have really fallen for his glamorous new wife, and I kind of can't blame him. I mean, he's not used to those bold, flirty manners of Aquitaine, and nobody has any indication that the feelings were mutual at all. (laughs) So I want to go back and talk very, very briefly about King Louis' upbringing, while we leave Eleanor to kindly ask the people serving her food to wash their dang hands, if you please. (laughs) She introduced hand-washing to court. Wow. Louis was the second son, the one destined to be dedicated to the church, to study, to knowledge, and he was placed in a monastery for his early education. And it really seemed to be a good match of temperament and future. I mean, he he needed the discipline, he needed the routine, and you know what? He got it. So there it is. And then his older brother, Philippe, died in a very stupid accident involving a pig running under the hooves of his horse, and he was thrown. Dumb. That's not even cool. I know, you're going to die. That's not the way to go. And so like that, out yanked despair from his nice ordered life into a role he'd never been prepped for. And honestly, I think that the high pressure catching up that everyone felt they had to do to him boiled up as these fits of temper sometimes. And I don't kind of blame him. Like he went from sitting in the library, basically, and having a nice, calm life to like everybody's yammering at him and everybody's expecting of him and he had to change his way and his clothes and his day and And his future you know he was he was getting fast-tracked to king and he wasn't ready for that that's not what he planned for so he grew up very handsome as we've said and very diligent he was very interested in his duties Although, wisely, I think he left most of the actual governance to his father's advisors, which I think, you know what, many princes and kings would not have done that and haven't. We've talked about how they take the reins and run. He actually, Mm -hmm. I think, planned to learn the ropes from these men. But for now, let's let them handle it. They're doing fine. Most of the time he was gentle. Most of the time he was thoughtful to the point where people in this macho age thought that he kind of lacked force. But then... There's these other times where he acted quite hastily and everyone had to clean up his messes just like what he was. I think a 16-year-old boy. You know what I mean? Oh, I totally know what you mean. I I have a teenage boy in my house and sometimes he's very manly and other times he's not. (laughs) So the advisors in question, his father's advisors, you know, all old men. Unfortunately for Eleanor, she rubbed those men the wrong way because she had an opinion. And because she was outspoken 
And she was bold, and she was intelligent, and her entourage had already riled up the conservatives. So much expense, for one thing, and their weird fashions. Like, the men wear long hair and shoes with pointed toes, and everybody's talking all the time, and all this gaiety is crazy. (laughs) Well, she... I imagine like her coming into the into court and it was kind of like this dreary castle and then Eleanor slides in and behind her is this technicolor wave of dancing and bright lights. Yes. So Eleanor, she was rubbing up against the fact that the rest of the world was not Aquitaine. You know, you grew up in freedom, you don't realize until you leave it. Mm. <laughs> How much you, that Really, people didn't expect you. I mean, people do not look kindly on individuality in a woman. You were a vessel for children and a credit to your husband, the end, not whatever this is. And in the past, French queens had participated more formally in policy, especially after they produced an heir. Um, But in Eleanor's case, the advisors feared her influence because Louis was super infatuated. And they tried and did leave her out of the process. And there's always that old standby of women's influence, pillow talk. But the fact is, Louis only very rarely came to his wife's bed. So the odds of having A, a child, or B, influencing policy were not in her favor. She was even displeased with her husband, who snuck off every chance he could to pray or to slip back into his old monastic life, as long as everyone was handling everything, any chance he got. In fact, he fasted every Friday with the monks. She was known to say, later, I have married a monk, not a man. And she's like, come on, it's date night. He wasn't even dressing up, you know, she's in these beautiful gowns of beautiful fabrics and fur, and he's in the plain clothes of a monk. It was easy for her to say that. To his credit, Louis showered her with jewels because he knew that's what she would like, and he pretty much let her do whatever she wanted with the domestic side of his life. Order whatever tapestries you want to cover those holes in the wall, letting all the wind, I don't care. Do whatever you want with the house, the servants, the running of the household, the food. It's all you. She had this newfangled thing called a fireplace and chimney installed in her quarters, which is, this is how far back we are. Yeah. The chimney yeah. was radical. Radical. <laughs> a chapter in Bill Bryson's book, At Home, which I love and highly recommend, that talks all about how a fireplace and chimney became a thing in the first place. So I would recommend going to read that. Heat in a castle. Actually, that was one of the first books you suggested I read when we met. I just love it. For those of you who are just tuning in to my Bill Bryson obsession, at least with this one book, he takes a house, his house, in fact, and he goes room by room and talks about how it got the way it is. The kitchen especially took on a lot of movement around the house, bathrooms when they came in, all the history of sanitation goes in that chapter. It's an amazing book. (laughs) So um, sometimes when Louis made decisions about Eleanor's land, he seems to have consulted her, at least in private. But the citizens of Poitiers, pretty much the second Eleanor left the plain of air of their borders, declared that they were no longer under Louis's rule. Like, no more king's land, we are out. And so Louis rode out there with a force, probably at Eleanor's urging, and occupied the city peacefully. So that's fine. That's fine. That's what anybody would expect a king to do, reinforce his authority. But then he went too far. 
He went off script, and he demanded that all the sons and daughters of all the powerful men of the city get in these carts and come back with me, because they're going to be hostages in case you guys mess up again. Oh, bad PR. (laughs) Completely. It was a total noob mistake. He thought he'd think for himself. Oops. So the advisors had to rush over there and calm down the situation, get the kids back with their traumatized parents. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would teach you a lesson, wouldn't it? Like, oh, this unstable man could come back at any time. Okay. That's true. Note to self, dig secret hole in backyard. <laughs> um, I don't even know. Sire, not so good for managing the hearts of your people, this. And incidentally, Eleanor was often sent, i.e. went, I don't know, with her sister for visits to this area, which is certainly a more diplomatic way to handle a cultural difference, don't you think? Oh, I definitely sent, yeah, send the person that grew up there. Yes, look, shiny thing. Shiny, look at your beautiful Aquitaine queen. La la la. Nothing to see. (laughs) So um, Louis decided that he wanted to go invade and annex this area at the south called Toulouse. You know, for symmetry, for those with OCD, it would finish out nicely at the bottom right-hand corner. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it would give him more sea access and give him a lot more territory. And Eleanor was descended from Philippa of Toulouse who had been her grandmother and who had been the heiress to this territory in the first place. Until she retired to a nunnery because she couldn't handle William IX's uh, partying ways. With danger ruse. (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know if this was Eleanor's idea. History does not say. But the fact is, Louis made all his plans for war without consulting anyone who knew about, you know, war. And this made for a challenging campaign, for sure, especially when some of the more experienced nobles refused to send any men or supplies to Louis as a result. And this insult burned him so badly. You know what? Not as badly as his cheeks burned after he dragged this cockamamie, unorganized force all the way south to the city of Toulouse, which saw him coming from afar and just shut the gates. Mm, Sire, did we bring any siege engines, you know, catapults, battering rams, trebuchets, anything like that? Mm, No. So, Louis and friends had to put their heads down and turn around and go back home. Wah, wah, wah. And oh, oh, if there had been Saturday Night Live then, poor old Louis (laughs) would never have made it home. He would have laid on the ground and died because he was so embarrassed. Um, He was so embarrassed. And he developed quite a grudge against the men who hadn't helped him in this embarrassing endeavor. This man, you should know, embarrassment is the fastest way to make him full of rage. Uh, It's a trigger. If he's embarrassed, (laughs) you got to get out of the way and get away and go in that hole you just dug in the ground. (laughs) Yeah, the monk is gone. (laughs) So specifically for our purposes, there's a lot of them. But the only noble you really have to remember, just remember this name, Theobald of Champagne. So how much influence Eleanor actually had on anything Louis ever does is tantalizingly private. But um, I just wanted to kind of show you this is what happens when you have two teenagers or one. I don't even know if Eleanor even needs to factor in. When you have teenagers in charge, sometimes bad things like this happen. (laughs) Wasn't that like the whole plot of Risky Business? (laughs) Is it? Yeah. The parents leave and the kid's there to guard the crystal egg and all heck breaks loose. Tom Cruise slides across the floor. Yeah, I do remember that moment, but I honestly couldn't tell you the... I mean, I can tell you the plot now, because you just told me. But I couldn't have done it before. 
<laughs> okay, so I, this next episode, though, this next episode in Eleanor's life involves her sister, her beloved sister, Petronilla. So I would say Eleanor is in deep on the following situation. Do you agree? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She can't pull herself out of this one. We can't, we can't uh, explain her away. What happened was Petronilla fell in love. Unfortunately, Petronilla fell in love with a married man. 51 years old. <laughs> a cousin of King Louis. And he loved her back. Or her lands, which the king had given her as a dowry. Either one, you know. Yeah. Petronilla was determined to marry him, as only a 16-year-old girl could be determined to do anything. But you know what? There's an obstacle, because Raoul's married already. And what are we going to do about that? Well, he's married to Theobald of Champagne's sister, which got Louis's attention. Oh, really? The guy that didn't help me on that last thing? That guy? His sister, really? Well, now the piper's going to be paid for that. It's not hard. For us, or anyone, to imagine that that desire for revenge and Eleanor's pressure on behalf of her much-beloved sister was brought to bear, and the machines began to move to get Raoul's 15-year multiple-child marriage annulled. So, that's going on in the background. <laughs> Step number one of making enemies would be that. Step number two. Louis, whether due to what the advisors called Eleanor's heretical influence, or Louis simply growing up and out of their influence, which is what I think it was, mm -hmm. Louis was clashing with church authority more and more and more. And it was a battle for power. And I know it's got to be irritating when you are the king, but yet there's this other king called the Pope that thinks he's the boss of you. And kind of is the boss of you. Hmm. So that's some conflict right there. Conflict about who was going to be the new archbishop uh, of Bourges, Louis's man or the Pope's man, caused Louis, using his previous experience on the other side of the wall, to close the gates of the city on the winner, the Pope's man. How about this? Did you bring a siege engine? Well, of course he didn't. Um, it caused the Pope to chastise the king out loud in public like he was a naughty little boy. And you know what embarrassment does. It hardens him up, Louis. And so he wouldn't back down. The Pope's like, I'm going to excommunicate you. I don't care. That's a very big deal for someone so devout. He's that mad. And so off to Theobald of Champagne's house, the new archbishop went. The Pope's man who I didn't like, who I don't want, who ran away from my gates. Louis and Eleanor had found three bishops that were willing to go ahead and annul Raoul. Annul? Annul Raoul. That's hard to say. Annul <laughs> Raoul's marriage, and he had sent his wife away to Theobald of Champagne's house, and then Petronilla and Raoul were married by those same three bishops, waste not, what not. The Pope got involved personally and ordered Raoul to go back to his first wife. And now a little visual aid for you. Place your thumb on your nose and waggle your fingers. That's what he <laughs> said to the Pope. About that. So Raoul and Petronella were excommunicated. Louis and maybe Eleanor, how much influence does she have? I think a lot. Gathered up another army in anger. Never invade in anger, Louis. Haven't they taught you that? And he decided to invade Champagne. But instead of heading to Theobald himself, he sort of used Theobald's innocent, innocent people as a proxy. And I'm sorry to say, the first forays of the army went over and ruined crops and burned buildings and killed innocent people. That's some bad PR starting. And then Louis himself led a force to attack the small town of Vitry. 
This was like carnage city that they went through and they were burning everything. The villagers, of course, went to the cathedral for safety. Unfortunately, the stone cathedral had a wooden roof. And as the army is shooting flaming arrows, everything's catching on fire, including the roof of the cathedral, which collapsed in on all the people and a thousand people died. And Louis was witness to the whole thing. He could hear their screams. He could smell the burning flesh. Their screams seemed to bring him out of whatever blind rage he'd been operating under. Do you know what I mean? Like, where he Mm -hmm. comes out of a trance on the hill and he collapsed into this state of shock and fell into this cycle of nightmares and remorse when he got home. Too late for all those people. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Come on. What are you thinking? This reminds me, did you ever see, if anyone's ever seen The Patriot, there's a scene where... The British forces suspected a village of being complicit with the revolutionaries and shut everyone in the church and set it on fire. And that's exactly what I picture mm-hmm. and hearing is the screaming and the banging on the doors. And, you know, these are innocent people. There's women, there's children. What will your regret do them, Louis? What good? He stopped eating and Eleanor, the advisors, and the doctors feared for his life. Now, I can tell you, and you can tell from the tone of my voice, that I am playing the small violin, because he is horrible. I'm sorry. You know, I'm so And another small insult sent him back for more violence. So I'm done with well, him. I, I saw him kind of as somebody that was put into power without the credentials and without the backing and without the personality to handle it he started to do what he thought was expected of him and he thought his uh body parts were getting bigger than they actually were and then suddenly he's like he realizes that he's reached his level of incompetence and it just snaps him and he remembers how he was raised you know he was raised in a monastery a very simple and devout life and he remembers that that's him not this other persona that's how i read it i didn't like him but I maybe I give him a little bit more. Um, I give him a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt. I think. <sighs> I, don't I know. know. I, I guess. Have you seen the Patriot? Because that is not a good scene. But sometimes people do bad things. Good people, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, is my like bleeding heart? Is it just like falling out of my chest here? <laughs> Louis and his dudes were riding around on horses, hooping and hollering and throwing lit torches into people's little huts. I'm not condoning this. It's horrible. And he should be punished for it. And what happened to him kind of is his punishment. Mm. Well, a year and a half later, still wrecked with guilt, but evidently with his appetite back, as he is not dead, Louis and Eleanor joined nobles from all over France for the consecration of the Cathedral of Saint-Denis, which is still there again, boggling my mind, although one of the towers is gone. It's on the north side of Paris, easily accessible. You should go see it if you're there. Incidentally, the only object in the world that people are 100% sure is associated with Eleanor of Aquitaine is a rock crystal vase, or would it be a vase? I think once you get to this level of importance, it might be a vase. Yes, if it's rock crystal, it's a vase. It's really pretty, though. It's ornate. I don't know. It wouldn't, like, hold flowers or anything. It's just (laughs) this decorative piece of glass. Well, Eleanor gave it to Louis at their wedding, and then he presented it to the church during this visit. And right now, it's at the Louvre, and I looked up where it was. In case you're there right now, I'm going to look it up. It's in the Richelieu Wing room, too. Run over there and put it on my Instagram. <laughs> I love how he, he like he regifted his wedding gift from his wife. 
But it was for a higher cause. Yeah, I guess so. Maybe that was part of his penance. I keep thinking there was a collection of rock crystal at Saint-Denis. I see. And so it actually made a little more sense than like, oh, quick, look in the spare closet and see if there's something we can give. I think it was more like a actual thoughtful gift. Right. I think. Anyway, Louis was dressed during this event when everyone else brought their A game. He was dressed in a robe and sandals like a monk. Well, and he participated. He helped carry the bones of the saint to their final resting place. And he was in a mood of despair about his immortal soul. And it was hot in there and there was incense everywhere. And I can't imagine everyone is peppy. And so he was so emo and so much so that this influential advisor named Bernard of Clairvaux kind of softened about him. Like he looked so sad and bad and guilty and he... He went over, oh, my son, it, it can all be fixed. You know, make peace and champagne. Come back to the church. Fatherly encouragement man is here. So when Eleanor asked to see Bernard of Clairvaux, <laughs> he was naturally <laughs> expecting another fatherly counsel. And he put, his, he put his gentle advisor face on. But what he got from Eleanor was a cold offer. You use your influence to recognize my sister's marriage and reverse that excommunication, and I'll use my influence to make peace with Theobald of Champagne and stop Louis fighting with the church. He could not comprehend that this person, this woman person in silk and fur and perfume wafting over his face is talking to him like this, so calculating. So like a man, and he blamed her at this point for everything that had gone before. Though, I have to strongly note here that her husband never did. Louis never blamed her for anything that had happened, even though it was a whole bunch of, as they say, cock-ups. He never <laughs> blamed her for it. Uh, but Bernard laid into her, laid into Eleanor so strongly that she became sort of a crying mess, which I think was a tactic and not... Because she was guilty. Because I don't think she had it in her. No, I, I agree. And she, what she did is she kind of switched gears. And she, she said, look, all I really want is a child. And we haven't had a child. Can you pray for us? So he softened right up. And, you know, like, my dear, what a properly womanly concern that is. I'm so sorry. And I tell you what, you used your influence to go ahead and bring peace. And I will ask the Lord and the Virgin Mary to grant you a child. Now, how? Might I ask, is that bargain any different from the one from five minutes ago? <laughs> oh, it's all in the delivery. Yeah. Because it's, it's it's suddenly his idea. Oh. Oh, topic. yeah. We've all seen my big fat Greek wedding. Yeah. <laughs> a man is the head, the woman's the neck. She can turn the head any way she wants. That's right. <laughs> I think Eleanor was a master of that. Yeah. She was a great neck. <laughs> Well, whatever happened, by the end of that day, that day, people, Theobald of Champagne had signed a peace agreement. Ultimately, Petronilla's marriage was recognized, and there must have been some sort of man-to-man -man conversation, because the very next year, Eleanor gave birth to her first child, Marie. So a girl, well, you know, it's a start, but women couldn't inherit in France the way they could in Aquitaine. Although, Marie would inherit Aquitaine if she never had a brother. Hmm. But... We have plenty of time to try again. 
Yeah, she's only 23 at this point. Well, uh, so Louis is still wrecked with guilt over Vitry, in particular, as he should be. And nothing he did with regard to prayer or self-denial or sending money to the survivors seemed to help him. Suddenly, some news came. Some news came from the Middle East. A Muslim ruler named Zengi had invaded one of the Crusader states. I don't know if anybody knows what those are, but they were countries that are ruled by European-origin royal houses since the First Crusade 50 years ago. Someone had invaded one and taken it over, and so the Pope issued a request to King Louis to gather his forces and go help his brother kings in Antioch, Edessa, Tripoli, and Jerusalem for Christianity, for God. And this seemed like the perfect way to clean up his soul against all advisors who said, please don't leave the country right now. Please, you don't have an heir. Don't, come on. No. Nope. Against them all, Louis decided to take the cross, as they say, and go on crusade. And much to everyone's surprise, Eleanor said she would go on crusade with him too. An exciting adventure awaits when we come back. <laughs> are back. Now, why did Eleanor decide to go on this crusade? It's not really something that she would do. You know, she's not like devoutly religious. There's so many different versions of why that she could have done it. One, the scandal sheets said that it was because she had had, quotes, all the knights in Paris and wanted some fresh meat. Now, those are the scandal sheets, so I think we can disregard that one. The second one says she loved Louis so deeply that she couldn't bear him going away without her. Mm. Me too. Yeah. Uh, another one was that he was so deeply jealous that he insisted his wife go. That has a little merit because he was jealous of her quite a bit, you know, of other men talking to her and the way she was with other men. Uh, and then there's a good reason called boredom, that she was bored in Paris. She was ready for an adventure and going on this crusade was going to give her quite a long one and visiting places that she had never been before. Plus her uncle was on the path and she could hang out with him for a while. It sounded like a pretty good plan. So what do you think? Okay, so number one, I think Eleanor went because she was bored. And number two, I think Louis wanted her to go because he didn't, I mean, they're going to be gone for a year, as far as he knows. Oh, mm -hmm. poor Louis. He really doesn't know what's ahead of him. So as far as he knew, they were going to be gone for a year. And he did not want to leave his wife at home during that year where he had no way of knowing what was happening back home. So I think his jealousy also, her Aquitanian vassals could be convinced, at least a lot of them, to go or send men along so their numbers would help. Mm -hmm. He wasn't going to stop her. Yeah, so it was kind of a win-win, and they both donned their Second Crusade t-shirts, you know, and got ready for the Grand Tour. <laughs> I keep forgetting to remember. Is that a thing? No. I keep sure. forgetting to... Anyway, that Louis was genuinely in love with his wife at this point. We know Eleanor could take or leave him, at least as far as I think. Mm -hmm. You mean emotionally she could take or leave him, whereas he was a little bit more emotionally invested in the relationship. Well, yeah, because to the point where his wiser heads or whatever were very concerned about that flaw in his personality. 
even if she had no direct influence, the fact that he wanted to do things to please her would be enough influence to cause her to be a serious problem for them. Yeah. So I kept seeing over and over again that his love for her was very childlike. And I, I thought about like maybe that first real boyfriend you have in high school or the first couple of years of college where you're just devoted to them. If you marry that person, that feeling goes with you, right? Man, I met some so. guys in Mexico that got married um, on the playground in second grade and they were on their honeymoon as 20 year olds when I met them. So you're probably right. Oh, that's so cute. I love that. Well, whatever the reason, and I, th- I, I think we got the reason. So funds had to be collected. There was new taxes that Louis put on everyone. There was church donations. <laughs> Eleanor had some tournament fundraisers, you know, jousting tournaments and, and things to create more money to fund this big production of this grand tour they were going to do. I never thought about those tournaments as fundraisers, but of course they were. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what they were. Um, So on Easter Sunday, a lot of other noblewomen took the cross too. Hmm. And the story is that they all dressed as Amazons (laughs) and did they or did they not? I don't know. Ride around in white robes with red boots and swords on white horses to encourage enthusiasm, yelling glory to God. I mean, you know, anyone else (laughs) you'd think, of course not. But now I'm like, hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I could see them all dressing in uh, matching cheerleader outfits and doing that. Sure. Because at this point, it was was just all kind of a lark. I mean, the realities of this crusade hadn't hit any of them yet. They didn't realize what they were signing up for, I I don't think. Reminds me of World War One. Anything of World War One? We're gonna go beat them! Yay! Hooray! Like, or the scene in Gone with the Wind where everybody leaves the party to go sign up during the Civil War. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You guys should have just stayed and eaten your barbecue because this does not end well. Well, hindsight, you know, is 20. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I will say here that it wasn't just noble women that went. There were hundreds of, I hate to say lower class, but, you know, non-noble women who volunteered to go as nurses, which I think is the most precarious thing I could think of because <laughs> the last crusade, so many women were taken by the Turks and sold as slaves. So they're not just risking, they're not going on an adventure just to go, I don't know, they're risking their lives here. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, you know, there's troubadours around and other entertainers. And, you know, this is a queen and her ladies, they need support staff. So if the queen and her ladies are going, it must be safe, right? Well, I don't know. But all over Aquitaine, evidently, left over, there were seven women for one man. That's how many men left to go on crusade. That's one stat I read. That doesn't have to save in itself. But anyway, um, let's hope for the best here. Louis does not have the best track record with regard to warfare, you know. Um, <laughs> but the spring that Eleanor was 25, off and off the entourage went to the Middle East. Now, I do want to add that little baby Marie was left behind. You know, they didn't take the kid with them. And quite honestly, I don't think Eleanor was much of a hands-on mom at all. So it wasn't any big deal, I guess. That's how I read it. Is that how you read it? Yeah. The norm was leaving your child in a whole staff's hands at a different castle. And like maybe when they're grown up, you'll have a relationship. I think that's the norm. (laughs) Ah, right. And whereas Marie was with her in the same castle. Is that what you're saying? No. What I'm saying is Eleanor's upbringing was the weird one. Oh, I gotcha. 
Yes. Marie's upbringing okay. was the standard for no Got women. You know? Got it. Yeah. Okay. okay. So they set off. The group traveled about 10 to 20 miles a day. They went up through France, down through Germany. And as they're going, they're picking up more crusaders, you know, building the army, building this entire caravan that's heading south at this point. Louis had told everyone that they were all to behave like the servants of God that they were. At this point, he's like, this is my religious. This is, I'm getting back to my roots here. So he wants everybody to be Godly, like he was being. Unfortunately, they behaved more like humans. You know, there was some criminal behavior. So there was some squirmishes and some uh, poor decision making. <laughs> say it again. What did you say? There were some squirmishes. Squirmishes? <laughs> no. The answer is no. It is skirmish. I know the word, but I'm just making up a new word for it because it wasn't like they were fighting. They were just like being rowdy and not behaving the way that Louis had actually wanted them to behave. So is a squirmish an embarrassing skirmish? Yes. Okay. That's a Fair enough. So maybe we should send that into uh, the dictionary to see if they can get it added. Squirmish. But eventually they reached Constantinople. Not Istanbul. Not Istanbul. That's right. It's modern day Istanbul. So maybe we will put a They Might Be Giants link in the show notes. And if Susan doesn't want to do that, I will put a link to that song, Istanbul, Not Constantinople, in the Pinterest board. Hmm. So you're not going to sing it? No. It's not in my vocal range. The Emperor Manuel of Constantinople put them up in the most fabulous palace. Fountains, gardens, luxuries of every sort. Get this, the air smelled of spices and rose petals covered the floor. And my goodness, was it good to be out of Paris? As far as (laughs) Eleanor was concerned, there were even forks to eat with. What the heck was this exotic (laughs) behavior? Oh, fork? Really, back in Paris, she had introduced napkins to the table, and that was a big deal. But now there's forks? Oh, I think at this point, Constantinople is even more glittering than uh, Aquitaine was. So I I think they were richer than everyone, actually. Well, they also had a lot of tourist dollars coming through. They worshipped in the Church of St. Sophia, which is now, of course, known as Hagia Sophia, which is still there. Which shocks me again. All these buildings from Eleanor of Aquitaine's time. If you have the ducats to go, you can go see them. So secretly, or not so secretly, Emperor Manuel was really anxious to hustle these people on through. Because, you know what, there's a hundred thousand restless soldiers that he wouldn't let in the city walls, frankly. They had to camp outside because he didn't want it. He didn't want that nonsense in his capital and who would his hope was that the crusaders and his enemies would crush each other and that he would be safe as a result like he didn't care who won basically he wanted decimation so that he could handle the resultant forces from whatever side came he actually was on nobody's side he's a chaotic neutral as they say to say he backstabbed louis is pretty much what he was doing yeah it's kind of bad and in fact did some bad things sent some scouts ahead gave some bad advice that would ensure that eleanor and louis were not safe on their journey yeah and hustled like you said hustled them out the door of constantinople and on his way as fast as possible although i can just see eleanor going we have to leave do we really you know <laughs> like holding on as they pull her away <laughs> 
So the Crusaders headed off. Unfortunately, their supplies were starting to run low. Um, Their funding was getting down. Eleanor had been selling some of her jewelry off. Louis had not gotten any better at leading, and he was solving problems of soldiers that were stealing from the towns that they went through by chopping off their hands. The chopping of hands will continue until morale approves. That's right. (laughs) Put your hand up if you agree with me. So he really wasn't a very powerful leader. And the soldiers were getting away with quite a bit, even with their hands getting chopped off. One day in January, Louis had a man take Eleanor and her ladies and the vanguard of the army who could move faster than, you know, the vast body of the army with all the baggage train, etc. Up to this plateau that was ahead on the map to set up camp. Plateau, good visibility, is a good campsite. Hmm. When they got there, it was windy. Mm, it was bare. It wasn't very attractive. And maybe, probably, at Eleanor's request, they traveled further to a nice, comfortable green valley. Now, isn't this better? So when the king made it to the original location, there was nobody there. But the Turkish forces, which probably saw them at the valley, noticed that it's the vanguard and backtracked, or had been tipped off by Manuel of Constantinople. They came down and they killed 7,000 soldiers, stole most of the baggage, and fled. So here's the vanguard waiting in the valley, waiting, waiting. And when no one has caught up to them, they go back to see carnage. They go back to see hell. And they had no idea this was happening. It's like I thought of that scene in Mulan when they came upon the army that had been slaughtered. It was the same kind of visual. Or, like you said, gone with the wind. (laughs) Gosh, that's right. Well, this man, the man that was supposed to stop on the plateau, Jeffrey, was sent back to Europe, which historians believe was because he, yes, had disobeyed Louis's orders, but had followed Eleanor's orders and probably made a good case for like, oh, what was I supposed to do? Yeah. So he was sent back to Europe instead of anything chopped or execution, which is probably what any other king would have done. Now they were in a pickle because, okay, their baggage is gone, i.e. most of them didn't have any spare clothes, certainly no spare shoes. Their food was going to run out. They ended up eating the horses, which for a European, I think, is a sin at the time. It was, uh, but whatever. I mean, happy enough to get the meat, frankly. Louis decided that things had come to such a pass that they were going to board ships for a three-day trip. But he didn't want to pay for it himself. So anybody that could pay passage on these ships for the three days journey and avoid the most dangerous part could pay and get on the boat. So functionally, guess what happened? They left... 7,000 people behind who couldn't pay, probably including all those women who had gone as nurses, to what? Starve? Be taken as slaves? Yes, and yes. Actually, about 3,000 of them switched sides and converted to the Muslim faith that were left behind. And I can't answer this one away. I can't explain this one away at all. Louis, that was a crappy thing to do. That kind of coldness is just no joke. It's just like only the rich people can get on the boats. Hmm. Sounds like the Titanic. I know that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> so, so he got his a little bit because what was supposed to be a three-day trip turned into a weather-ridden, terrifying three-week journey. And so the bedraggled old fleet landed at the port of St. Simeon in Antioch. So Antioch, one of the crusader states, was ruled by Eleanor's paternal uncle, Raymond of Poitiers. So you think, oh, you know, Dumbledore, right? Bearded, <laughs> venerable, gray-haired man. Oh, oh, listener. Oh, you just don't know. It's like a really good guest on, kind of. 
Yeah, good guest on. Yeah, he was very handsome, tall, strong, and not that much older than Eleanor herself. I think he was in his mid-30s at this point. And Eleanor and him, in addition to being related, they spoke the same language, not just literally, but culturally. It was like they got to bond, and she's like, oh, thank God, a normal person. And her and Raymond got along famously. Too famously. So the royal couple stayed in a palace with glass windows. You guys, running water, put the back of your hand on your forehead. What is happening? Wine cooled with snow that people have brought from the mountains. New clothes, every possible happiness after this rotten horse meat and sweat and everyone stinking for half a year. Anything and everything to make you happy, my niece. Um, I will say all races and religions seem to be welcome here. There were traders. This was a very important area for lots of trading routes to meet. So you've got Africans and people from Venice. They probably brought the glass, frankly. Asia, (laughs) the Muslim call to prayer rang out over the marketplace. And so Louis already mad because here's his wife hanging out with handsome, you know, uncle in quotes like you don't seem to mind that they're related in his eyes and in everybody else's eyes um it was too close for comfort so not only that but this muslim call for prayer what did we leave for to come down here to fight people with such fervor if the infidel's right here and you're gonna buy an orange from him i don't get it like what are we doing (laughs) the religious tolerance is freaking me out and it irritated him extremely so This whole thing upset Louis to such a great degree that he refused to follow Raymond's advice in the war, even though Raymond's the man on the ground who knows the best strategy. Kind of, let's go get Edessa back, the original reason the Pope called you in the first place. Um, You know, we're going to go to Aleppo, poor old Aleppo, still in the news a thousand years ago. Um, Uh We're going to go get Aleppo, then we're going to go get Edessa back. No, thank you. I, says Louis, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to do penance for my sins. And Eleanor told her husband that if he didn't do what Raymond advised, then she would just stay behind and he could go on without her and her vassals and their men, too. How about it? Also, you know what? I've been thinking about why we don't have a son. And it must be because we're fourth cousins, says Eleanor. And the church forbids a closer relationship than seventh cousins. So obviously God is mad at us. God is mad at you. And I want an annulment. I want to go back to being the Duchess of Aquitaine. Dun, dun. And she'd been losing faith in her husband, just like I did. <laughs> With every mile that they traveled, I mean, it, she her disdain just kept building and building. And this scene with her uncle, and it was too much. I think Louis' heart really broke. This is the part where I think he finally didn't love her anymore. And I think Eleanor was a master tactician because, woo, she knew God's displeasure would be a trigger for that man. Don't mm-hmm. you think? I mean, it's pretty shameless. It's pretty shameless to use his weakness for her gain. But And for a while, it seemed like he'd go for it until someone reminded him, you know, if the queen goes and good riddance, fair enough. If she goes, though, Aquitaine goes. And that kind of hardened his heart a little bit. And on the night that the French king's forces left for Jerusalem, huh, you're not going to believe this, or maybe you will, Louis' soldiers kidnapped Eleanor at midnight. She's asleep. Shoved her into a cart and hell for leather rode out of there all the way to Jerusalem. Ugh. And there's going to be a point where you can jump out and run back. And then there's going to be a point where, like, okay, you're wandering around in hostile territory and you're a lady. There's no way. So you got to kind of stick with your entourage. There's, oh, 
and hope for the best. Yeah. He just, I mean, figuratively slung her over his shoulder and spanked her bottom and took her out of there. Had was, people do it. Come on. I know. I've said figuratively. <laughs> he couldn't possibly do that. You might break a nail. I'm just kidding. That's right. <laughs> so King Louis and Queen Eleanor spent 11 mysterious months in Jerusalem. I say mysterious. We know what King Louis was doing because he was able to wash his soul at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as he intended the whole time. He went to this event and that event. And even though there were some events where there were ladies present, even noble ladies, there's no Eleanor. Is she in disgrace? Is she refusing to go? We just don't know who's the boss. But she's not in the news at all. She's missing from the Chronicle for this almost this whole year. In the meantime, the whole crusade idea, like the t-shirts are becoming increasingly irrelevant. There's no crusade. (laughs) We're done. Um, It just kind of fizzled out, dissipated behind him. And Eleanor and Louis really stayed estranged. They took separate ships back to Europe. That's always a good sign. Um, (laughs) But they were intercepted. Remember Emperor Manuel from Constantinople? He planned to take them prisoner. His ships are waiting. Well, she was saved from that fate, but a storm blew the queen's ship someplace. And she went missing for four months until she turned up again in Italy. She'd been rescued by the navy of the king of Sicily. And I say I want a diary. We don't have one. I know. All we could do is, I mean, all we could do is do historical fiction in our heads about what happened. You know, she take like a four month break and go hang out on an island somewhere. With the blowing around. I mean, four months, I guess, is not unheard of for a sea voyage, but they're not in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. No, well, they were the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, it's still pretty far out there. It's not like Lake Michigan or, you know, it's a pretty big area. I don't don't know. I don't know. We don't know, unfortunately. So they're in Italy now. And um, separately, they talked to the Pope about their marriage. And he worked all the magic at his disposal, both religious and paternal and practical. Like he made them sleep in the same bed for one thing. And of course, Louis was delighted by this. I think sadistically, honestly, because I don't think he loved her anymore. But Eleanor, I guess, was resigned to the bed sharing because honestly the pope said oh the fourth cousin thing my children i'll write you a thing a dispensation (laughs) don't worry about that god approves don't worry it'll all be good just sleep in the same bed so there's her reason for leaving and if the pope who's the boss of that sort of thing says it's fine then what are you gonna do you're there you are There's no legitimate way to get out of the marriage Mm -mm. then, right? So they returned to France after two and a half years of absence, and Eleanor was pregnant again. And I cannot imagine that was a wanted child. No. It could be a boy. It could be a boy, in which case circumstances could change. I mean, drastically change. Because in France, there'd been a history of mothers of an heir having more of an influence in politics. Could be. If those people would let her. It doesn't matter because even though the child had a boy's name of Alex, it's a daughter. So this is two girls for Eleanor and Louis. And Louis couldn't have been too thrilled about it. They're both about 30 years old. And he doesn't have that male heir that he just desperately needs. And the nobles began to press Louis to annul with Eleanor and marry someone else to get sons. But like Aquitaine. Mm. So if Eleanor ever marries again and she has a son, Aquitaine is gone. And he's like, you know what? 
those people, I can't even govern them anyway. They're out of control and, and I need a son. That's more important than Aquitaine right now. I need an heir. And Eleanor's thinking, well, you don't have to ask me twice, you know, but she's got a mind. She's got a plan. And she saw the way the wind was blowing. The welcome wind, mind you. And so she wanted out. And you know, the kidnapping probably didn't help, I would guess. Yeah. <laughs> so in March, when Eleanor was 30, four bishops granted Queen Eleanor and King Louis VII an annulment on the grounds of consanguinity. I said that right. I fully expected not to do it, and I did. Wow. So the old fourth cousin excuse. This arrangement suited them both. The children were deemed legitimate, as they had made this mistake of marrying in full innocence, in good faith, and the children were to remain with their father, which was pretty standard. Um, Aquitaine, Poitou, Gascony, all the lands that Eleanor brought into the marriage were hers to take away again. Her men had already been put in place all over, so there would be a very smooth transition of power back from France. And after 15 years of marriage... Louis rode one way, and Eleanor rode another way, and they were never to meet again. And you know, maybe there were some fond thoughts. Someday, someday, Louis thinks, I'll I'll marry again. Someday Eleanor might find someone else. And oh, oh, it was with great shock that Louis learned that two months later, by May, I'm talking, was the ink dry on all that paperwork? I don't even know. <laughs> Eleanor had married privately secretly his rival for territory gaining. How did that happen? What the heck is happening to my world? You're going to have to turn into part two to find out. <laughs> Sorry for the cliffhanger and thank you for listening. Bye. We have a challenge for you. Evidently, four-fifths of Americans have never heard a podcast. Well, we know you've been on board, so now's your opportunity to rectify that horrible statistic. Please take a moment and tell the world about your favorite podcast by using the hashtag tripod, T-R-Y-P-O-D, on Twitter. This podcast or any one of the thousands of podcasts available that you happen to like. And while you're at it, you should tell a few friends in person how to listen to a podcast. Wouldn't it be a shame to let 80% of people miss out on such great entertainment? Our tripod pick, which goes so well with Eleanor of Aquitaine, is History of the Crusades. I recommend that you start at the beginning, I'd say, and by the time you reach episode 25, you'll meet an old friend. Go forth and educate. You can find our show notes at thehistorychicks.com, and the closing song is Princess of Flowers by Margaret Davis. Thank you.
Ring on. 